you stand over here by the open door in case this starts to go south. And then I'm just <laughs> I figure that beats you guys throwing me in the pond. <laughs> I'm Rich Arstead. Uh, I am the Senior Manager Archivist at the Montana Historical Society. I've been there for 15 years. Um, I grew up in Libby, Montana, where the other Western News is at, and uh, maybe we should have been called the Northwestern News at the moment. And so logging and timber were a big part of uh, growing up for me. And I went to the University of Montana, got my bachelor's degree in history, and then I went back and got my master's degree in history as well. And I wrote my uh, thesis on the 1917 Industrial Workers of the World strike that hit Northwest Montana in 1917. And as I was working on that, I kept running into these references to these soldiers during World War One who went to France and cut lumber. And so it's one of those cases where you just kind of file something away for a little while until there's an opportunity to, to tap into it later. And, who knew that it was going to be today? Um, so, just on a quick side note, my, my boss is sitting back here in the corner. Performance evaluations are coming up here pretty quick. You guys could really give me a shot in the arm here. Um, so, this is about the 10th and 20th Engineers Force, uh, which were, were two regiments that were established during World War One. Um, engineers in the military weren't a new thing, they'd been around forever. Uh, the Romans were famous for their engineers and the camps and so forth that they built. Um, but there had never been an instance where they were systematically logging and cutting wood for frontline warfare. And that's what happened, happened during World War I. The U.S didn't invent it. Um, Great Britain and France had been cutting wood since the war started in 1914. Um, let's see if I can make this thing work. Yay! Um, there was a trade journal being published out of Portland, Oregon called The Timberman, and it reported heavily on what was going on in the Pacific Northwest in the lumber industry and so forth, and so they printed a number of articles about uh, the uh, recruitment of Canadian loggers into the military to be sent over to uh, to France, and uh, the good work that they were doing over there. Um, you know, the lines of battle got static fairly quickly and ended up being trench warfare, and as a result of that, there had to be a way to put these guys in trenches to where they were out of the mud and the muck in the bottom of the trench. And so one of the things that these guys would do in these lumber mills was that they would cut and construct duckboards, which would get them up out of the out of the goo in the bottom of the trench. Now the other thing about the trench is the trench is above your head, so you don't get shot in the head. Seems reasonable. Um, but if you're going to shoot over the edge of the trench, you've got to be able to fire over the top of it. So they would also construct a uh, what they call a firing step for them to step up on and shoot over. They also did some interesting things where they would gather the treetops and branches and stuff like that, the strap wood, and they would bundle it together and they call them fascines. And they would use these to repair bridges and they would use these to drop into mud holes and things like that to do a quick fix on, on roads and so forth as they were, as they were operating during the, uh, the wet season. And so there was a lot of call for um, wood. Uh, the stakes to hold up all the barbed wire and so forth, um, to buttress the edges of the trench so they didn't cave in. Uh, firewood. 
they used a lot of firewood as well. And so the Canadians were the first ones to get tapped into, and it's, you know, kind of some uh, new world uh, hubris uh, was the fact that, uh, you know, these North American uh, loggers were eager to get over to France so that they could show the old world exactly how they were supposed to uh, go about uh, logging their force for the war effort. And um, so you can see that the timber was an early part of, uh, of the war. It was also used for the construction of ships and airplanes. Um, most of that production was done, at least for the United States, here in the States. Uh, United, United States <coughs> President Wilson asked for a declaration of war against Germany and its allies in April of 1917. Congress approved it. And um, General uh, Blackjack Pershing was sent over to France. And one of the first things that he decided that they needed were foresters, people who could work in the woods, who could cut lumber, uh, who could run sawmills, and, and, and that type of thing. So that's what uh, that's what he wanted recruited and sent over first uh, to help them out at the American Expeditionary Force. And the Timberman was great. They ran all kinds of, of interesting articles about this. Uh, so here's one that I'm going to quote from: "Hoist old glory, lest we forget the United States is entering in perhaps." into the maelstrom of the world's carnival of death and strife. The country is entitled to the fullest measure of unselfish patriotic service from all its citizens. No industry is better fitted to render real service to its country than the lumber industry. The woodsmen are initi show initiative, they are fearless and energetic. They are accustomed to acting quickly and they are ready for any emergency. No man can, have a better, can give a better account of themselves than the, uh, than the lumbermen. So, they were, they were all um, locked and loaded and ready to go. Um, the Forest Service played a big role in the recruitment of the 10th and the 20th engineers. Uh, the Chief Forester, Henry Graves, was uh, pulled into the military, and then his assistant chief, uh, Bill Greeley, was as well. And Greeley noted when he got over to, the, to France that the French seemed to be meeting this in a bargaining shrewd spirit rather than one in earnest cooperation in an emergency. <laughs> so they were shocked that they didn't just say, yeah, come on in, you can clear cut over here. Um, and we'll have a little bit more about that. It was estimated that they would need about 25 million board feet per month uh, to feed the frontline troops. Uh, less than a year later, that was raised to 75 million board feet. So they were putting out a lot of, uh, a lot of wood. Uh, France wanted to import American lumber, however the German submarine uh, campaign was such that they didn't have enough shipping to do that. And so that again, that was one of the reasons they decided to send troops to France as opposed to, uh, as opposed to uh, shipping the wood directly from the states. Uh, of particular interest for cutting timber in France, for those individuals who had experience in what they called the short log country of the West at that time, which is western Montana, the Panhandle of Idaho, and eastern Washington. So they figured that the dimension of the timber was about the same size, and the operations of the portable mills and so forth were, would be similar enough that these folks would probably make the best recruits for these, uh, for these, uh, for these regiments. And they wanted trained woodsmen. They wanted people who knew what they were doing. These weren't going to be combat troops. Um, they weren't going to be trained to use all the various types of equipment and so forth that a frontline soldier would be uh, typically trained for. They were going to go over there to do the job that they did here. Um, their expertise was what was needed. 
So the first group, the first regiment recruited was the 10th Engineers, uh, the Carpathians. And one of those individuals who uh, enlisted very early on was Dora Steeles, who had been a member of the U.S. Force Service. Uh, and um, at the time he enlisted, he was the dean of the forestry school at the University of Montana. Um, the forestry school at the university had the honor of furnishing the largest number of men for that first forestry regiment. So they were recruited heavily uh, for, those, uh, for those positions. They did basic military drill at Camp American University near Washington, D.C., so that they would know how to do the administrative paperwork that was necessary and salute. And, you know, they did some marching and things like that. Um, and um, Timberman was so kind of wrapped up in this notion that they actually sent a reporter with the tent. And uh, he, he came up with some great stories. Uh, this one is by Noel Du, who is a, a staff interpreter. And he wrote, the Husky 10th is the name given to this regiment by the various other units located here, and approval shows in the eyes of the drill masters when the boys fall in for drill. So they were, they were very ready to go. Uh, they shipped out for France uh, on a converted British passenger liner as a troop carrier, uh, and it just happened to be the SS, S. Carpathia. Anybody know what the Carpathia is famous for? Um, one of the recruits uh, told Colonel Braze after landing in France that we're not much on uh, drill, but we're hell on cutting down trees. <laughs> um, the tent arrived, they started putting in the work, and they realized immediately that they didn't have enough troops. So they started recruiting a second, uh, a second regiment. Uh, the first board cut by Americans in France was November 26, 1917. The first American mill up and running was three days later on November 29th. By the end of the war, the 20th was operating 81 sawmills in France. So it was pretty impressive. So they began recruiting the 20th uh, almost immediately. Um, it's two battalions consisting of three companies each of 250 men. Again, all of them experience loggers. So consider what's going on. You've got a major strike taking place in the Pacific Northwest where you've got thousands of loggers that have gone out on strike. Plus you've got the U.S. military who is actively recruiting loggers and sawmill workers and so forth. And so we have this massive shortage of manpower uh, in, uh, in uh, western Montana. Um, the local Forest Service worked very hard uh, to help recruit um, for, uh, for the regiment, as I mentioned before. Um, and uh, the interesting thing is that they used to, uh, it was quite common for them to publish letters from soldiers home in the newspaper, in the local newspaper. So this is a letter from G.W. Basie of the 20th Engineers, who's at Camp American University, to his sister Ruth Howard, who lives in Libby, and it was published in the other Western News. Uh, and he wrote her, we drill about seven hours a day. Yesterday I stepped out with sore feet, and they put me on the woodpile for three hours. Today I stepped out with tight shoes, and they marched us through troop creeks, got our shoes soaked up, and then marched us until the shoes dry. So I guess that'll hold me for a while. <laughs> Um, it sounds pretty interesting. The Americans didn't have their own equipment over there uh, at first, and so they had to use the, the portable mills that the French had to offer. 
and they didn't think much of them. One of them observed that the French mills were aggravations of the flesh and promoters of profanity. <laughs> Another one bet that he could chew more wood. <laughs> so they, they, they looked down their nose at the uh, European wet method of uh, logging and lumbering. Okay, SS Tuscania. Uh, there were 2,179 American soldiers aboard the Tuscania when it was torpedoed off the coast of Ireland on February 5th, 1918. Uh, it was the first troop ship uh, carrying American soldiers um, that was sunk by a German submarine. The Missoulian, uh reported on the sinking of the Tuscania uh, quite a bit. And um, it was really, um, I think it was kind of a wake-up call uh, for, for the Americans uh, back home. A number of the soldiers ended up having to go into the water immediately and wait for pickup from lifeboats and rescue boats and so forth. Uh, it was um, fairly, fairly gruesome um, to behold. Uh, survivors that didn't make it off the lifeboats had to stay on the ship and wait for British destroyers to come in close enough that they could transfer to the British, uh, the British destroyers. Uh, during one of the long waits, one of the companies of the 20th, after seeing a number of their fellow soldiers and so forth drown in front of them, and not knowing exactly what was going to happen to themselves, stood in line in perfect order and saying, where do we go from here, boys? Where do we go from here? As I mentioned, the Missoulians reported heavily on it. There were a number of individuals who were, who were uh, from Montana. They were on board. Uh, a number of deaths took place. There were also a number of injuries as well. Um, this shows the funeral service in uh, Ireland that took place for those bodies that they recovered. There were 210 people uh, lost, and 91 of them were members of the 20th Engineers. Seven of them were from Montana. This gentleman down here, uh, there was actually a website at one point that was dedicated just to uh, the sinking of the Tuscania, and he was actually from the Bitterroot, and he was he was a, a fairly prominent um, athlete. These are his athletic medals and so forth. The picture didn't uh, turn out quite as well as I hoped on the slide. So, folks were very aware of, of what the cost of the war was going to be, um, even for those who weren't actually on the front lines. But again, you know, we're Americans, and Nagadakuo has just kind of been the DNA. And I loved it when uh, I ran across this quote uh, from one of the soldiers that said, we're going to plank a road for the American Army, if need be, to the Rhine River, and then build a bridge across it. Wow. So the total strength of the 10th and 20th combined was 360 officers and 18,000 enlisted men. The interesting thing was is that even though they had military engineers that were professional officers assigned to um, the different companies cutting timber and so forth, they actually kind of fell back into the old style of how the camps were run back in the States. So the foreman could be a sergeant, could be a corporal, whoever, but whoever ran a, camp, uh, a logging camp back in the States ended up running the logging camp in France, and the officers just kind of went along with them. It's not like they didn't have their share of problems. One of my favorite uh, stories is about uh, this group that uh, were, they were going to be cutting uh, lumber on the other side of this lake. 
And so they went on the other side of the lake. They, they took the trees down, they limbed them all up and everything. Um, they put them together in a raft, a raft across the lake, and all the logs sunk. They weren't used to dealing with hardwoods. <laughs> kind of scratched their heads a little bit and thought, okay, well, let's, let's try this again. So the next time they cut the trees down, they didn't limb them. They left all the limbs out, and then they rafted them across and took care of them. So they, they figured stuff out as they went. Um, and the French logging methods just tickled these guys. Uh, Charles V. Wingett was a uh, student at the Montana School of Forestry, and he was a member of the 10th. And he sent a letter to the Timberman in March of 1918 that was published about, uh, about the logging. And he wrote, It's a peculiar sight to see the French people log. Many are the days I've sat in Professor Drake's class and listened to his profound expostulations of the French and lo German logging methods. All the time I was thinking to myself, now look here, Professor, there ain't no country where they gotta save all the small twigs for firewood and let the tree down soft so like the undergrowth won't get injured. You can't spring that old stuff on us and expect us to write it down for future reference. <laughs> Nevertheless, it's all there, for I've seen it with my own eyes right here in France. <laughs> in order for an American lumberjack to become a French logger, it will be necessary for him to drink squirrel whiskey so he can shinny up these trees. The first thing that's done according to French Hoyle is to climb the tree and cut every limb off clear to the top. This is to save the reproduction from injury. The tree is then undercut as close to the ground as possible, and then by using a little business something on the order of a square to sight with, they can fall the tree within the gnats, well, within a few inches of where they want it. <laughs> Seriously, however, they have this forestry down to a fine point and waste nothing which is suitable for lumber. They have to be, for France is not a heavily timbered country like the western states where we live. Luckily, all, all Lucky will be the day when the states go get, get down to such a basis. Not until one has been in this country and seen with his own eyes the care with which the lumber industry is carried on can he realize the useless and extravagant waste in our American lumber industries and operations. So they were learning a few things along the way. Hey, Rich. Two minutes? All right, we can do it. <laughs> 9,000 men working in France. If that... Oh, uh, Bill Gritty talking about dealing with the, uh, with the French. We had many arguments with French foresters over cutting requirements, and I found myself on the other side of the table from similar controversies with bloggers back home. Certain trees are designated to be cut when necessity demands it, but talk as you will, you cannot cut what you will. So it was kind of interesting how they uh, wanted to do that. George Slack, who was a lumberman up in Kalispell, was a little less politic about it. When he said, you damn frogs, what do you want us to do? Win the war for you or save your force? <laughs> they, they kept Captain Slack in France until 1919. So they did that on purpose. Um, In fact, the American uh, forestry, the 20th engineers, didn't get out of France until September of 1919, so almost a year after the armistice was signed. Um, another interesting story is that the, that the Timberman reported on was a PV wielding uh, lumberjack who approached a down German airman 
and scared the guy so bad with his PB that the guy immediately surrendered. Even though he was <laughs> um, I thought that was uh, I thought that was rather amusing as well. Uh, Greeley kind of summed it up nicely. He said when when he wrote about uh, the 10th and 20th engineers, they came straight from American forests and sawmills, trained in American woodcraft with all the physical vigor, the adaptability to life in the open, and rough and ready mechanical skill of the American woodsman. And the 20th engineers exist to this day. They were demobilized in World War I, at the end of World War One, World War Two. They were brought back Vietnam, Saudi Arabia, Iraq. Afghanistan. They've got great. They've got a great history on their website, so they are very proud of their tradition. And uh, that's the 20th Engineers of the Thank you very much.